And we open our Bibles together today to the Gospel of John. We'll begin in chapter 1 and then move on to chapter 12. When you get a new appliance or a tool perhaps, are you the kind of person who reads the instructions before you use it? Or do you put them away until you get into trouble? That tells something about you, you know. I well remember the days when I stayed up half the night, Christmas Eve, putting toys together. I prided myself in doing that without looking at the instructions first. After all, isn't that the test of real manhood? And usually I learned about two hours into the process that I needed a little help. I remember when a bicycle I put together looked something like Ezekiel's vision of a wheel within a wheel. And I learned how important it is to look at the instructions along the way. The Bible is also an instruction book for human life. God has given it to us so that we might discover the meaning of life and come to a personal relationship with Him so that we might know Him as fully as possible. He took an extraordinary step. He came into this world, this world of humanity, becoming a man Himself, and lived among us. That's what we celebrate this Christmas season. John, in his writing of Jesus' life, his gospel, does not give to us the Christmas narrative. He strips away the narrative, but provides for us the substance of what happened when God the Son came. We've looked at verses 1 through 3 on previous occasions. Let's begin in verse 4. You will notice the positive, expectant tone that suddenly turns... In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. Now notice how it turns. And the darkness has not understood it, or perhaps better, has not overcome it. Although it begins with a positive tone, there is a negative word that is inserted, at least an implication, in the word overcome. There is a struggle that is implied when the light shone in the darkness. But victory had been achieved. He goes on in verse 9 to say something very positive. He says, The true light that, come, that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Notice again the positive immediately followed by a turn in the tone to the negative. God was in the world, and the world was made by Him. But the world did not recognize Him. He came to His own, but His own did not receive Him. Yet to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, he gave the right to become children of God, children not born of natural descent or of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. These themes, the 
theme of the sun coming and what a positive thing that is. And then the turning of the tone to his rejection. These themes are fleshed out in the Gospel of John. Ultimately, Jesus' ministry leads him to the cross where he died. The climax of the end, the turning of the Gospel of John from Jesus presenting himself to the time of his death really begins in earnest in chapter 12. And that's where we're going to turn today as we think about the glory of Christ's sacrifice. John chapter 12. Verse 23, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The glory of Jesus Christ is realized in his sacrifice of himself on the cross at Calvary. You say it seems strange that you speak of glory when you speak of a cross, for it's more gory than glory. My friend, in the midst of the gore, the blood, and the suffering of that cross, there was glory revealed. You say... How was that glory disclosed? Well, let me suggest to you this morning three ways. In the first place, his glory was disclosed in his obedience demonstrated to the Father. Jesus says, verse 27, Now my heart is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. We can only imagine the departure of the Son of God from the glories of heaven as he came to the earth. What might have been the thoughts of the Father as he watched his Son leave? Did he say, son, I love you. Go, son, and do the work that I've sent you to do. And remember, I am with you. I love you. And 
what were the words of the Son as he left the glories of heaven? Knowing what was before him on the earth. Well, these words we don't have to guess at. The writer of Hebrews tells us in the 10th chapter, verses 5 through 7, and the essence of that conversation from the Son back to the Father can be found in these words. Lo, I come to do your will. Jesus said, Father, I'm going to do what you have sent me to do. We don't know exactly when, as man, he understood his mission. But Jesus was conscious of his unique identity and committed to the Father's things, the Father's business, even in his childhood, as Luke tells us, Luke 2.49, when at the temple Jesus said, Don't you know I must be about my Father's business? And we ask ourselves the question, did John and Jesus, John the Baptist that is, and Jesus, his cousin humanly, Did they ever discuss what was ahead of them as they played together in childhood? How did John come to understand the special role that he was given? Was it through his mother and father? Perhaps. Nonetheless, John, the writer of the gospel, records that when John the Baptist was baptizing out there in the River Jordan, he saw his cousin, Jesus. And on that occasion he said, Look, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. So he knew who Jesus was. Maybe they had discussed that at some time in their young adulthood. Now the hour had come as we come to the twelfth chapter of John. Jesus calls it the hour. This is an hour that up to this point had not yet come. Now Jesus says the hour has come. He calls it the hour when he would be glorified. Notice that. That is, when his glory would be revealed. And so I ask again the simple question, how is it revealed? By his obedience to the will of the Father. We notice notice as man, he says, my heart is troubled. Do you have a troubled heart this morning? Do not think that Jesus escaped a troubled heart. He himself says, my heart is troubled. The word literally means my heart is thrown into confusion. What he is saying is that the danger, the strain of what lay ahead of him was beginning to press on his soul. This trouble that he felt within him continued as much as we know all the way through the Last Supper with the disciples, when he said to them, Let not your hearts be troubled. 
but his own heart was troubled, and it seems to have culminated in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Thy will be done. And so we see his glory. The glory of perfect obedience. We see the struggle of the God-man with the circumstances that were ours before him. And yet we see the glory of his perfect obedience, his righteousness, as he prepares to lay down his life for sinners. Never does the glory of who he is shine more clearly, more visibly, than in this hour, as he calls it, when he faced the cross. The glory of Jesus Christ is revealed and disclosed in his sacrifice on the cross. We see it disclosed in his perfect obedience to the Father. Secondly, his glory was disclosed in the judgment that he delivered to the prince of this world. In verse 31, he says, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Have you ever noted in your mind that John, in his gospel, does not include a record of the temptation in the wilderness? And yet here he makes it very clear of the battle that occurred between light and darkness, between Christ and Satan. He makes clear the reality of Satan's role in the darkness of the world and in the rejection of the world of the Savior. After months of uncertainty, now decisive action will take place. This is not only the time for his own glory, but now is the time for judgment, as he calls it, on this world and its prince, its prince who will be driven out. Now, judgment here does not mean final retribution is going to come fully or immediately at this point. What Jesus is saying is events are now going to unfold which will set in motion judgment. God had made his final revelation in his word and now all the world will be held responsible for whether they have obeyed or disobeyed that revelation. And Jesus makes it clear that this judgment includes the one who originated sin and who brought it into the world and who orchestrates its advance. And he says this prince, who is Satan, will be thrown out, literally, Again, this is not to happen immediately. But the sentence was pronounced at this point, and it will be carried out. Jesus is reminding us here by these words that Satan, the prince of this world, is a usurper. That he has no legal claim to reign. That the Lord Jesus was, through his cross, going to strip Satan of his weaponry and his powers. Through the cross, he would lead 
Satan in a triumphant march, Satan being the defeated one, Christ the victorious general. He would make an open show of Satan and his forces of darkness. He is going to be thrown out. His doom is sure. The glory of Jesus Christ's death is seen in the cross where he defeated his enemy, Satan. In Hebrews, the second chapter, in the 14th verse, we have a further word regarding his coming in flesh and blood and why he did. It says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he, that's the Son, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by fear of death. That is one of Satan's tools to hold people. He enforces his orders, his mastery in their lives by holding over them the fear of death. Jesus says, No longer. I am coming that I might take away that power from him, that I might destroy him. He was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil, writes John elsewhere. The glory of Jesus Christ was disclosed in his cross suffering because there he delivered judgment to the prince of this world. You say, well, then we need not uh, worry about Satan. No, that isn't the case. He's still a very real enemy. We need not be terrified of him. We need not fear him. But we do need to be cautious of him. Peter says he is like a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. I read a story about Carl Armading, who recounted an experience one time of watching a wildcat in a zoo. And as he stood there watching this wild animal, an attendant entered the cage on the opposite side from where he was standing. And he had nothing in his hands except a broom that he was carrying. Closing the door behind him, the attendant began to sweep the floor of the cage. <clears throat> he observed that the attendant did not have any weapon with him to ward off an attack. And in fact, when he got over to the corner where the cat was lying, he poked the cat with the broom. So the cat got up and moved away and he swept where the cat had been. The cat hissed at him. But that was about all. And so when he got out of the, the cage, Armading went over to him and said, You certainly are a brave man. He said, No, I ain't brave. Well then, said Armading, that must be a tame animal. No, no, said the attendant, he ain't tame either. Well, he said, If you aren't brave and the wildcat isn't tame, then I can't understand why he doesn't attack you. Well, the attendant chuckled and he replied, Well, mister, he's old and he ain't got no teeth. <laughs> Makes a little difference. Jesus extracted the teeth from the devil. 
He still walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But he ain't got no teeth. Because Jesus at the cross of Calvary took his teeth away. And we have to be wary. But we don't have to be afraid. Because Satan is conquered. He is still active. He is still very much an enemy that we have to be on guard against and against whom we wrestle, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 6. But don't you ever think that Satan is going to gain a victory. He's already defeated at the cross because the Son revealed His glory by destroying the devil and pronouncing judgment upon him and his whole system. And though we live in the midst of a sort of a revival of his system today, when we see overtly satanic principles being placed in position in the culture in which we live. Ultimately, friend, this world cannot stand before God because Jesus Christ has already delivered its judgment 2,000 years ago and it is going to be carried out. The glory of the Son. Why did He come into the world in human flesh as one of us so that he might destroy the devil and his whole system. But there is a third way in which we see the glory of Jesus Christ revealed at the cross in his suffering. His glory as the eternal Son of God was disclosed in the salvation that he determined for humanity. Notice that he says in verse 32, when I'm lifted up from the earth... I will draw all men to myself. This term lifted up was used elsewhere in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, again in chapter 8. And each time it is John's expression of Jesus' suffering on the cross. And in fact, he notes here, this he said to show the kind of death he was going to die. Jesus said, when I am lifted up between heaven and earth, the result of that is that I will draw all men to myself. This is not a word about universal salvation. As though in the end everybody is going to be saved. But what he is saying is, when I am lifted up, I will draw from all men without distinction. The poor, the rich, the Jew, the Gentile. I will draw from them, they will come to me. In fact, you notice in the context, more broad context of John 12, Jesus is making all of these statements in response to some Greeks who had come wanting to see him. And this seems to be the closest point to the answer that Jesus gave to that desire that they had to interview him. He said, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. He is glorified in that he redeems a remnant of Adam's race to inhabit a new heaven and a new earth. He himself was raised from the dead and returned to heaven and is today gathering his own to himself. And one day he is going to redeem us entirely, including our bodies, and we will be with him forever. 
That was the joy that was set before him when he endured the cross. And so Messiah is glorified as the Lord of redeemed humanity with whom he chooses to share his kingdom. Now in the midst of all of this teaching regarding his glory, there is an application that we do not want to miss. It is an application that is given in a picture in verse 24. Jesus is talking primarily about himself, but there is a very clear application to you and me. It is an application from agriculture, and he says that a seed is just a seed as long as you hold it in your hand. But if you place that seed into the ground and it dies, and goes through the process of germination, therefore, it sprouts a new plant which produces a whole new head of grain. So where there was one piece of grain before, now you have many pieces of grain. There's the picture. His point is that I am going to lay down my life, and as a result of doing that, there will be many who will be called the children of God. Then we see the principle in verse 25 applied to us. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. To love our lives means to put ourselves before him. He who loves his suke, that's what he says here. If you could see that spelled out in English letters, you would see that it is the word from where we get psychology, psyche, psychologist, psychiatry, psyche. He who loves his psyche, by that the Greeks meant who love themselves, their individual personalities, who they are with all of their experiences and all of their attainments. That was the psyche to the Greek. Jesus says the one who puts himself first will end up losing his life. But the one who's willing to lose his life, who's willing to lay it down, who's willing to say, as I am, thy will be done, that one will experience eternal life. There was a proprietor of a dry cleaning shop who also, as a part of his business, dyed clothing. And so he hung this sign in his shop window. And remember, he's using dye here, D-Y-E. He says, we die to live and live to die. The more we die, the more we live, and the more we live, the more we die. It's also true of Christians. The principle of laying down ourselves for the will of God. George Mueller was asked the secret of his prayer life and his fruitfulness as a Christian. He replied, there came a day when George Mueller died, utterly died. No longer did his own desire, preferences, and tastes come first. He knew that from then on Christ must be all in all. There's a precept in verse 26. Jesus says, Whoever serves me must follow me. And I ask you, where was he headed? He was headed to the cross. And so the precept that he lays down here is that we cannot serve him without following him to the cross. And there dying to ourselves 
Dying to our self-interests. Dying to our rights. Jim Elliott was martyred in 1956. As you probably know, he was trying to reach the Aka Indians in South America for Christ when he was killed, <clears throat> along with four other missionaries. Just three years earlier than that, after watching an Indian die in a jungle hut, Jim Elliott was moved to die if necessary, he said in his writings, to help these people come to Christ. Little did he know at that point when he wrote, Lord, let me live until I've declared thy works to this generation. Little did he know when he wrote his willingness to die that three years later, before he was 30 years of age, he would die. And as a result of his death, his laying down his life literally for Christ, thousands of Indians in that part of South America have come to faith in Christ. And beyond that, thousands of Christian workers around the world have gone into the Lord's work because of his example and testimony in his writings. Whoever serves me, says Jesus, must follow me to the cross. Then we have a promise. Where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Jesus said, it is worth laying down your life because I want you to know that if you do, if you're willing to die to yourself and thus live, one day you'll be in heaven with me and my Father is going to honor you. He says, we'll be with him and be rewarded because we lived and died as did he. Let's keep that before us this Christmas season. That the Son of God came into the world that he might die. And he has called us to himself that we might have life and then offer it for him and not live it for ourselves. We are pushed and cajoled and exhorted and commercialized into the idea that we deserve it all and we ought to live for ourselves and get it while we can. Jesus says, lift up your eyes from the world. Get a picture of things as they really are. Understand that eternity is real and lay down your life in this world for my sake. Be willing to put your self-interest behind you. Be willing to die to the rights that you claim and lay them aside. And one day you'll be with me and my Father, oh, my Father is going to honor you. Wendell Phillips was an advocate of human rights 125 years ago. He was one of the strongest of the leaders of the abolitionists in the United States, that is, those who wanted to get rid of slavery. And once that had happened legally, he went on to other 
aspects of uh, human rights. The story is told of one night when he was many miles from his home in Boston and had finished one of his fiery lectures. And his friends urged him not to attempt the journey back home until the morning. But he was a man who was utterly devoted to his invalid wife. Well, they said, the last train has left, and in order for you to get back to the city, you're going to have to make some kind of special arrangements now, and it's very cold and it's sleeting. And you face several miles of of rough riding before you get there. The story is told that Wendell Phillips simply smiled and said, "But, but at the other end of those miles, I shall find my beloved Anne. Isn't that a great story? My friend, it may be sleeting, it may be tough. Life may be hard now, but I want to tell you something. At the end of it all is our beloved Jesus. And whatever we pass through in this world for his sake is well worth it. Because one day we'll see him and share in his glory. The glory that he revealed in his sacrifice at the cross. Let's pray. Friend, have you trusted Christ? Do you know him as your Lord? Do you have eternal life? Are you sure your sins are forgiven? At the end of the miles of your life, is Jesus going to be standing there waiting for you? Will you trust him today? Do not delay or put off any longer. This Christmas season, will you receive God's gift in his Son? A gift given for you, a gift paid for, the cross on your behalf. Dear child of God, are you living for yourself? Who's first in your life? Listen to the words of Jesus. The one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. Will you surrender yourself to him and say as he did to the Father, Thy will be done, Lord. Whatever it cost me, whatever the sacrifice, Jesus, your will be done. I hope you'll do that. Today, give him your gift of surrender. Lord Jesus, how wonderful you are. How glorious. And we see your glory demonstrated at the cross where you conquered Satan and where you purchased us. Lord, because of what you've done on our behalf in laying down yourself, we lay down ourselves for you. And we ask you to fill us and to use us as a people to further demonstrate your glory in this dark world in which we live. 
May your glory be seen in our lives as we live out your life in the strength of the Holy Spirit. Let's stand together with our heads bowed and just sing quietly. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. Live it out, Lord. Live out your life through us. This week may we walk in your glory, knowing that whatever our road entails, you're standing at the end of it. And it'll be worth it all when we see you face to face in your glory. Amen.